You're listening to To Whom It May Concern, a live show in Los Angeles, California, where folks read their letters on stage, real letters they've written or received, improvised letters based on audience suggestions, and the letters we wish we could write. Locked in warehouse hall, the answers are the cancer them. Kelsey Burke reads a letter about how her obsession with Mariah Carey almost broke her neighbor's marriage. Um, so, middle school's the worst, right? Not for me. It wasn't. In fact, I think probably I peaked there. And ever since, it's just been a slow, gradual decline. It didn't hurt that I had these bad boys on a teeny little seventh grade body. I mean... I didn't care what anyone thought. I really, like, I loved, 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 loved Mariah Carey. Oh, here's another thing you need to know about me. Totally confident 13-year-old, having a great time. Also hated clothes. Like, so much so that it wasn't just like, oh, I'm not going to get dressed for a little while. If I'm in my room for more than a half hour, these bad boys are coming off. So (laughs) I'm in my room. (laughs) I was like, you've got me feeling emotions deeper than I ever dreamed of. And I was doing like the whole, I was dancing. I had a hairbrush. And my mom comes in and she goes, I just got something in the mail. It says, Dear neighbor, I'm writing in complete frustration at how inconsiderate a certain person in your house is being. Not to overshare, but my husband and I have been experiencing problems in our marriage for quite some time now. We have been working very hard at strengthening our relationship for our children's sake and had been making good progress until I found out that my husband has been taking pictures of your nanny. Capital letters, please tell her to put some clothes on or shut her blinds. I don't know how you could feel comfortable having that woman around your husband. Sincerely, your neighbor up the street. Okay, guys, spoiler alert, we didn't have a nanny at the time. Uh, (laughs) So, there's so many things wrong with this. Clearly, she was like a cry for help all at once, but my mom... In the only way that a mother can know how to do it, knew which exact neighbor it was, like she just knew, she calls the neighbor and she goes, you tell your husband, we don't have a nanny, that's my 13-year-old daughter and I will call the police. So, that letter happened and of course, the way I did anything is I just joked about it with my friends, like, I was like, oh yeah, there's probably like some website, like windowsill.com or some bullshit. (laughs) with like all my pictures on it. And you know, my, my satire is probably, probably a little ahead of itself because now with the world, <laughs> the way it is now and the internet, I feel like they may actually be on a website somewhere. <laughs> so if any of you find them, uh, if you could just email them, email them to readyourletter.com. Um, and I just want them for me because those were the glory days, you guys. <laughs> uh, in all honesty, Even though I joked about it, that was literally the day that I learned to be ashamed of my body. But it's a funny story, right? (laughs) Thank you. Alex Stein reads an acerbic letter to a self-proclaimed, albeit questionable, guru. 
this piece is called Positively 4th Street and Wilshire Boulevard. And I just want to say before I start that that's a Bob Dylan reference. The, those of you who are too young to know Bob Dylan, uh, he has a song called Positively 4th Street, which starts with the line, you've got a lot of nerve to say you are my friend. Dear self-proclaimed enlightenment mentor, spiritual coach, and metaphysical warrior, I don't mean to criticize your chosen life philosophy, but when someone asks you to stop sending them multiple abusive text messages, the enlightened response is not to text back and accuse them of being backstabbing and judgmental, but to stop sending abusive text messages. It really is that simple. It's not a riddle or a Zen Cohen. Alternately, you could say you didn't mean to be abusive. You could say something spiritual or enlightened or wise, or you could apologize for your behavior. But if you have any interest in promoting good or harmony or making the world a better place, or not even that, just not making the world a worse place, literally, the very least you can do is stop sending abusive text messages. Now, ideally, this should happen the first time the recipient of those abusive text messages requests it. But sometimes, for technical reasons, texts take a while to come in, so it might not be possible to do it on the first request. But you should definitely do it on the second <laughs> or the third. If, however, you continue to send abusive text messages after the sixth request, you may be confusing spiritualism and enlightenment with what behavioral scientists call being an asshole. <laughs> now, you might object to my mentioning this in public. Please know that my decision to do so was made carefully and I take full responsibility for it. This could be the biggest difference between me and you. You still refuse to take any responsibility for your actions or admit that there's something wrong with sending multiple dozens of abusive text messages long after you've been asked very nicely to stop. While I was online this afternoon, I noticed on your website that you provide soul transformation workshops <laughs> to facilitate creative and spiritual growth. I'm curious about this. Is this the same type of spiritual growth that makes you say you enjoyed having me as a friend as long as I did what you wanted, but that we stopped being friends when I told you that your continuing to insult me was not acceptable? Your website also describes your, quote, transformative guided creative journeying pathfindery, unquote. <laughs> to help tune out disagreeable external voices. I'm wondering what part of that work tells you that if someone disagrees with you, they're automatically wrong. And furthermore, do you offer a course to counteract the disagreeable nature of your own voice and teachings? And if not, you might want to consider adding that as a new revenue stream because that way you could continue to bully people and then charge them a second time to overcome the bullying that you yourself <laughs> inflicted and charged them for. Now, I know we have a lot of mutual friends who are very talented and extremely quirky. I'm here to tell you you've drawn the wrong lesson from them. 
You emulate their bizarre behaviors and forget that those behaviors are only tolerated because they're enormously talented. And I know that you feel underappreciated, but the first step to solving that problem might be to do something that's actually worthy of appreciation. When I met with you last month, you said that you needed help marketing yourself because you had no coaching clients. I did not realize that you're being a, quote, transitionalizing shift worker, unquote, and life path facilitationary did not require any actions on your part, but instead relied on me, relied on me to team up with you so you could enlist, enroll, and entrap more clients. Now, my refusal to participate in your scheme does not reflect a lack of open-mindedness on my part. It's more a strong self-protective streak and the desire not to be linked in any way with the practices of you or your mystery school, which I neither support nor condone, but recognize as the very worst name ever for a business. <laughs> and in the future, you might consider saving your 10-minute incoherent rants done in a variety of seemingly insane voices complete with animal noises until after people have signed up and paid you. When you contacted me a week after we met and said that you wanted to clear up any hurt feelings, I literally had not thought about the conversation since we had it. I regret now telling you that I had no hurt feelings because the fact that my feelings weren't hurt seems to have hurt your feelings more than the actual conversation we had in which your feelings apparently were hurt. I know that it bothered you when I said that you may have been projecting something you invented or imagined onto me, perhaps somewhere in your soul journey as described in flowery language and printed in the Comic Sans font on your website, you can find your way back to reality and not be so angry with those who refuse to enable your delusionary behaviors. On a related note, your dog is not frightened of other people. He is frightened of you. Every time I've seen him, he stares at me with these big puppy dog eyes in a desperate plea that I should do anything. I can hear him saying, canine gods, please help me. I promise I'm never going to pee on the carpet again. Do anything to help him escape from you. His furtive barking can only mean that the bullshit you espouse has gotten so far under his fur and he can't understand why people with brains ten times bigger than his fail to recognize your hypocrisy. Additionally, I am in receipt of your note dated December 1st, 2014, in which you told me, quote, your pathetically superior stance remains in your own mind. I have several questions about this. First, if my stance is only in my own mind, why is it disturbing or even noticeable to you? Second, if it's so pathetic, why does that stance, which, as you told me, exists only in my own mind, bother you at all? Also, you spelled pathetically wrong. <laughs> and mind. And if you choose in the future to use the word condescending in written communications, please note that it does not begin with the letter K. <laughs> also, you might want to learn the difference between the word eschatological 
which means related to the apocalypse or end times or the end of the world, and scatological, which a more spiteful person would use right now in an elaborate play on words to indicate that you yourself are completely full of shit. I'm sorry that it bothers you that people judge you on the basis of your work. If you are so easily crushed by how others see you, perhaps you should consider doing something more solitary that you never need to share with anyone. On the other hand, you might want to look into the soul-based spiritual courses on your own website, which could help you overcome any negative external voices so that they would not be so devastating to you in the future. Alternately, do better work. <laughs> Finally, you have been misinformed. Contrary to what you told me, I never told anyone you were, quote, fucking crazy, unquote. I'm not a trained clinician, and I don't feel properly equipped to evaluate your craziness, however extreme it may be. I did, however, discuss specific things you've said and done with three other people, one called you a whack job, the second disagreed and said you were a nutcase, and the third went with the more clinical, mentally unbalanced. But listen, wherever you fall on the lunatic spectrum, I now am thinking that your real problem is that in your life, no one has ever told you or not told you enough those three little words that you need desperately to hear. Seek professional help. <laughs> Namaste. India Dupre reads a letter from her childhood that reveals the tenacity of a mother's love and the corruption and horror that stretched that tenacity to the limit. Dear Fairbridge Society of Australia and Great Britain, Hello, my name is India Dupre and I have some questions for you. When you first started shipping children from Great Britain to Australia in 1912 under the guise of giving poor, underprivileged children a fresh start, what were your true intentions? to really help these children, or was there a bigger, less virtuous picture in mind? Did you realize the orphans you were sending over actually all had parents? That in all the 70 years you sent kids to Fairbridge, only one was actually an orphan? That mothers who had put their kids temporarily in care while they got back on their feet during bleak times in England returned to retrieve their children only to be informed they'd been adopted to wealthy parents in a closed adoption. You must have known when you put these kids on boats, changed some of their names and birth dates, and when you separated children from their brothers and sisters at the docks that they would be almost always unfindable. Did you realize that the majority of these kids would never see their parents or families again? And who was it that realized after 1968, when a Child Welfare Act was passed in England and you could no longer get away with bringing kids over on the boats, that it would be a good idea to bring over single mothers and their kids instead? My mother was one of these mothers, coerced to believe her children would be healthier in sunny Western Australia, and it may help my asthma. Did you know we had a relatively normal life back in England? That we had grandparents who loved us and a three-bedroom council house with a veggie garden, dolls, toys, a dog, and our mother's love? 
Did you realize your trick would rob us of a normal life from then on? Did it help that your farm school was located in so desolate an area it was almost impossible to get to or escape from? Do you remember taking my mother's letter of employment, the one where she was to be given a proper job at Fairbridge as a cottage mother and ripping it up in front of her and sending her away screaming with other mothers on a bus? Do you know that I ran after that bus? Did you know that no one explained to us what was happening? Why our mum had left us with hundreds of other kids at Fairbridge? Why we suddenly had to eat dry, thick squares of meat when we'd never eaten meat before? Why we had to scrub floors when we were only three and four years old? Why we had to be whipped? Why my nine-year-old brother was denied a shower for two weeks and bullied by the other boys to do his work and theirs for 16 hours a day? He was up at 3 a.m. to milk cows, chop piles of wood, carry heavy bricks and plough the fields manually. Did you know when you told the mothers they couldn't have their kids back until they had a job and a house in Australia that unemployment was at its highest at that time? Did you feel any remorse about telling us our mother was dead when she was actually out trying to find a house and a job and follow your rules? Did you know my mum, who came to Australia a shy Mormon, became a stripper in her quest for a job, that she would never wear normal clothes again, and that she'd have night terrors the rest of her life about her children being taken away from her? She'd scream out our names in the middle of the night, still to this day. She'd have to take pills to make her sleep and antidepressants and almost always barricade her door at night. I don't feel much for myself. Somehow the pain is too deep, buried away somewhere I may never dig up. But I do feel for my brother, my sister and my mother. And for what you did to them, you are pigs, you are assholes, and I hate you. Did you know there were pedophiles at Fairbridge? My brother saw empty beds at night and boys were taken on drives with suited men in fancy carts. By the way, what did you do with our shoes? All the kids' shoes. We were never allowed to wear any. I noticed in a photo from 1924 of Kingsley Fairbridge's funeral that the children stood barefoot in the pouring rain as his casket went by, while the adults stood under umbrellas in warm coats and smart shoes. Didn't you imagine those children were cold? Did you think to share your umbrellas? Did Kingsley Fairbridge know as he went to his grave what you would do with his good name? how you'd corrupt his vision and turn Fairbridge into nothing more than a white stock work camp. I now know the reason Fairbridge was so important to the British and Australian governments. It was to keep Australia white, right? To uphold the British Empire. Most of the indigenous people, the Aboriginals, had already been killed off and many foreign countries were denied immigration. You believed you could take Britain's poor young cast-offs, whip their bad ways out of them, and turn them into upstanding citizens for a new country, with barely any education and no love. Did you ever think if you'd allowed your cottage mothers to be caring, it might not have been so bad at Fairbridge, that you might have produced happier people? Were you afraid love would cause a lack of order? Okay, Fairbridge Society, if we'd stayed in England, my asthma may have never cleared up and we wouldn't have grown up by the beautiful beaches and had such a colourful life. But that is only because my mother stole us back from your system. Only because we refused to accept your rules. 
She refused to accept your rules and refused to accept that we were wards of the state and that you owned us. Only because she would not give up and found the strength not to. We fled from one side of Australia to the other, hitchhiked across the Nullarbor, the longest road in the world. Did you know we'd get stuck in the middle? But that even the middle of the desert was better than Fairbridge. Did you realize we'd spend our lives on the run, living in tents, mostly because you felt my mother, now a stripper, was not fit to mother? Yes, Fairbridge, my mum certainly did not give us stability. We moved every month or so when notes from your offices via children's protection in each state appeared on our tents or at our schools. We often had no money and little food, but we always knew we were loved, always. Were your four brick walls made of the building sweat of children more suitable to house us kids than the plastic and canvas of our tent? Is your definition of a home a place where you're protected from the weather? Because that's the only thing those cottages protected us from. Not from the predators or harsh cottage aunties and uncles whose paraphernalia for punishment included tennis rackets and cricket bats. Or the people who treated head lice by pouring kerosene over kids' heads. I helped my mum set up a two-man tent a few years ago overlooking Malibu at a campsite. I sat in it realising how flimsy it was, remembering how my brother would hammer in the posts and pegs with a nearby rock, how we'd get rained out, how it felt much bigger as a kid, how mum would use our black trash bags filled with all our clothes as pillows, how the plastic canvas fell under my back when the blanket would pull away. Oh, the tent trying to get the pole to stay up, the time it burnt down due to a candle, but how we felt safer in a tent than we did at Fairbridge. I thank the Australian Prime Minister in 2009 for apologising for their institutions that house the forgotten Australians, that's what they call us, and for the network clan for getting them to send me and my siblings an apology in the mail. But it would have been nice to have gotten one from you specifically, Fairbridge. I heard that you managed to keep out of the press because of the highly esteemed sponsors backing you, including the patronage of the royal family. The Queen Mother visited Fairbridge, as did Prince Charles not long after we were there. I wonder if they bought the lies. I wonder if they thought this place was really helping destitute orphans start a new life. And you? Did you think you were giving us better lives? That we were better because of you? Were you ever interested in what happened to us Fairbridge kids? Let me know. India. Thank you. Mary Jo Smith returns to the letter show as the guest improviser. We asked the audience who Mary Jo was writing to and what happened at the holidays last year. The audience suggested she was writing to Uncle Rick and that schnapps happened at the holidays last year. Oh, boy. Dear Uncle... No. Hey, Uncle Rick. Hey! (laughs) To my favorite uncle. Ha ha, you're my only uncle. Hi. It's me, Lydia. Your niece. (laughs) I can't believe it's only uh, 22 days until Christmas, which is like 342 days since 
Well, I'm writing to apologize. Um, first of all, um, A little known fact about me is that I really like peppermint. <laughs> it's almost like um, a hypnotic scent for me, and when I smell it, it, it just takes over, and I can't... Oh, no, he'll never buy that. <laughs> My sponsor says I have to make amends. I'm not a thief, but I did steal from you, and not just the schnapps. It was a lot of schnapps. I didn't realize that that was sort of part of your Wheel of Fortune booty when you won last <laughs> year. So I feel even worse that it was a prize. At least I took that and not your washer. No, don't do that. I have a lot of character defects. <laughs> One of them is that um, I think I'm better than people, and this comes out when I drink. <laughs> so when I said that I knew the way to fix your marriage was to tell Aunt Vivian more often that you loved her, I had the best intentions. I shouldn't have yelled it over the hostess microphone at Chili's. <laughs> also, I want to apologize for the joke gift. Please note that I put joke in quotes. I thought it would be funny to Photoshop you into uh, those pictures of uh, your ex-wife's family. Ha ha, LOL. <laughs> Anyway, how's the new house? I still feel badly about the fire I started in your old one. Wow, what a Christmas. I hope you got the gift card I sent you from Lowe's. It really was the least I could do. Anyways, I hope it's okay, but I'm coming again this year. I'm not driving, because the breathalyzer thing isn't working, so I can't start my car. I'm gonna take the bus. How would you feel about picking me up? I'll just Uber it from the bus station. I'm gonna bring presents for the kids. I know you needed more aero beds. Anyways, Merry Christmas. Also, um, well, I wrote a letter to your boss. I just, I wanted to apologize, um, you know, for my behavior when I showed up at your office unannounced. Again, best of intentions, LOL. He was really kind and wrote back through his lawyer. I think he's forgiven me. I hope you found a new job. Anyway... I wonder who picked my name for the holidays. <laughs> ho, ho, no. Love, Lydia. P.S. I've lost a few pounds, so if you get me something, I'm in a size 10. Thank you. Jill Denby Guest honors us with her honesty and her heart. 
September 14th, 2014. Dear Ben, I just dropped off all the things to be cremated with you. The velvet champion wrestler robe I gave you, your Jim Morrison leathers, your World Wrestling Federation belt, your four published novels, promotional t-shirts, your stuffed animal schmooshmoo, and small love notes. The manager of SoCal Cremations kept referring to you as she, even though I corrected him several times. You would have laughed your ass off, thinking somehow he knew when solicitors called your house, you always answered in a high-pitched tone, often referred to as lady of the house. But still, his disrespect annoyed the crap out of me. Then he explained the cremation process. 100 pounds per hour, a cooling down period, then separating the skeletal remains and grinding them into ashes. At 170 pounds, you'd be finished in about two and a half hours. Your life disposed of so quickly. I'm barely keeping it together. I know you'd be telling me relax and have a cocktail, but you're conveniently not here. Next, he showed me to the oven, a large stainless steel affair set into a giant concrete chimney. In front of it was a lineup of cardboard body boxes, just like the kind you'd see at the UPS store. I wondered if you might be in one of them, but they were all too tall. At 5'9", you always wore your cowboy boots to match my 5'10 stature. We'd always joked about it. But as I hear myself speaking about you in the past tense, it's just breaking my heart. I finally asked if you were in the building. What's the decedent's name, he asked. Decedent? You've been called a lot of things, mostly asshole and self-centered son of a bitch, but never decedent. When I gave him your name, he told me my beloved hadn't arrived yet. I began to feel faint. Well, where would he be if he was here? In the freezer. I burst out laughing. Of course you'd be in the freezer, with the vodka. In a heartbeat, I went from laughing to sobbing. It was unimaginable. You, once a pro wrestler of such solid flesh, succumbing to the flames, disappearing into the fire in a final cloud of smoke. But in a way, it was a perfect ending. You were always on fire. And I wondered, if you were here watching your own demise, whether you'd think it was some kind of big cosmic joke, some gimmick as you'd call it. Would you laugh or cry? But now that you're gone, it's another thing we won't get to talk about. I'm an unstoppable roller coaster of emotions anger, love, rage, hate all at once. Having stepped on the merry go round that was your life, this was unavoidable. If you were here right now, I'd strangle you, you little shit, for being so reckless. For someone who claimed to love life so much, you fucked it up. I knew you were never going to be the rehab guy. Life was your buffet, and you were going to have all of it, no matter what. Sometimes I was jealous of your wild abandon. That's what courage in a bottle will do for you. But you always were the master of ceremonies, the Pied Piper sent here to ignite, to incite, to spark, to fuel, to inspire, to shake up, to inflame, 
to badger, to cajole, to annoy, to anger, even exasperate, but always, always to question the status quo. At 42, whatever demons you faced, you managed to write, publish, and tirelessly promote three novels in three years. You spread your words, you made your mark. Mission accomplished. Some days, I wish I never loved you, but you were every color of the rainbow irresistible. We had that cellular chemistry, the spark that never died. You ignited me, taught me to be fearless, that it's better to act and flounder than not to act at all, that life is a game you get to make up, that you are who you say you are. And I was a great student. For that, the pain was worth it. But you were always mysterious and unpredictable, and in the end, you didn't disappoint. Leaving us with a Sunset Boulevard ending, we'll never know how you got into that pool. Again, somehow perfect. Never could get a fucking straight answer out of you. The night before you passed, you said you wanted to be together forever. You must have known you were going to die, because there were two things you never believed in, monogamy and sobriety. But here's what I wonder. In heaven, will I still be able to lay my head in the crook of your arm? Will we still be able to see faces in the clouds and trace the lines with our fingers? Can we still make bacon for breakfast? I still can't imagine a world without you. You who could own me with a kiss, melt me with a smile, undo me with your words. In a world without you, it's an ocean without waves a sky without blue, a night without moon. And like a rainbow, you never know when it will come again. But when it does, I'll know it's you, up there smiling down at me, probably saying, hey, babe, life is short. What's next? My name is Jane Entwistle, and I'm a producer on To Whom It May Concern, and I reprise my letter to jolly old Father Christmas. Dear Father Christmas, I haven't written to you in many years, and that's probably a good thing. I do miss you, though. I miss those earnest letters in which I put my best foot forward and truly believed I deserved the thing I was gasping for. I miss really believing in something, in willing myself to sleep Christmas Eve so you could come and deliver your magic, eating the cookies and milk carefully laid out, always making sure to leave a bite lest we think you a glutton. I miss Rudolph's toothy bite marks on the half-eaten carrot. I miss being so fucking precious. Things kind of went to hell after you left. Granted, presents took on a more realistic duty. Who could forget the carton of camel cigarettes and assortment of lighters peeking rebelliously out of my stocking? <laughs> Never had a Christmas sock brought such joy. But after your departure came the responsibility to gift with as much magic and intuition as you. Some of my choices landed well. Some brought genuine tears, the handmade gifts of sentimentality. And some gifts solidified my family's standing as freak. <laughs> it was the year I gave my family a toilet seat for Christmas. 
I was old enough that the gift couldn't be considered an act of childish naivety. I was well into my predilection for vodka and orange. Under the advice of another somewhat remote family member, I was led to believe that a nice wooden toilet seat with brass fixtures would be appealing to new homeowners. <laughs> it had a fashionable cardboard carrying case with a viewing window so one could stop to admire the toilet seat nestled in its temporary housing and a sturdy plastic handle with which to carry it about. This came in handy when I had to cross the U.S.-Canadian border. <laughs> I had taken the Greyhound bus into British Columbia, Canada from Washington State and was required to walk through customs for inspection. I gingerly laid the toilet seat on the counter <laughs> along with my bag. Anything to declare? Asked the border agent. Just a few Christmas gifts for my family. What's that? He asked, pointing at the carrying case. A toilet seat. <laughs> Snow fell quietly on the Peace Arch border crossing. Seagulls surfed snowdrifts. Babies were born. Father Christmas packed his sleigh, and somewhere a grizzly bear yawned. Finally, the customs agent said, Miss why are you transporting a toilet seat into Canada? Well, it's a gift for my mom and dad. They just bought a new house, and I thought. The grizzly bear settled in for his winter's nap. The seagulls lifted off in search of a salty snack, and finally the agent waved me on. Good luck, and Merry Christmas, miss. I felt that all of Canada was smirking at me in that moment. I never did see that toilet seat in use. Mm -mm. I did ask about it once, which was a mistake, because we're British. Mom, what happened to that toilet seat, what I gave you at Christmas? Oh, sweetheart. And in the deafening silence that ensued, tea was made and drunk. A sausage roll was consumed. And a Christmas sweater was knit that could easily house all of Torrance. I still have that Christmas sweater. <laughs> But I'd bet all of Father Christmas's sleigh bells that they don't have that toilet seat. <laughs> I miss you, Father Christmas, you son of a bitch. You and your big black boots I could never hope to fill. Happy Christmas. <laughs> this particular letter show tugged my heart in so many directions, and I know from the audience's response that I am not alone in that. The outrage, the tenderness, the laughter, the grief. It's why the letter show exists. So will Forge On, because everyone has a letter. You have been listening to To Whom It May Concern, produced by Jane Entwistle and Justin Crane, and recorded live at the Lyric Hyperion Theater and Cafe in Silver Lake, California. 
The musician for this episode was Giant. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean so you never miss a single letter. And if you have a letter you would like to submit, even if you live in another dimension, we'll read it for you. Visit readyourletter.com. Forces flowing where